All right, how many of you knew that I play guitar? Anybody here know that at all? You doubt? Now, I know some chords. I've always wanted to be like Mark, though, you know? This is his guitar. And a guitar has how many strings? How many? And what happens if they're in tune? What? Sounds well. But you got to have somebody to play it, though, right? Yeah, I used to be in a, in a rock band at one time when I was a kid, and then played later in college, and uh, then had children, and I had a guitar, and I gave my, my guitar to my son, and I have yet to see it because it went from my oldest son, then he got his really nice guitar, and then gave it to my youngest son, and my youngest son still has my guitar. Kind of like my golf clubs. I always wind up with the sons. I don't know why that is. The only thing I've kept and will not give are my guns. What do you think about that, Alvin? You know, like that. So anyway. But a guitar is a great instrument. But, you know, if you try to tune it and get it a little out of tune, how does it play? How does that sound? Huh? You can know the chords, but if it's not in tune, it's not going to play the way that it was designed to play right? Life is a lot the same. And Jesus is about to give us six attitudes that are highly important, six attitudes, in which he is going to call us to fine-tune these attitudes so that as we do so, our life will operate as they were supposed to be and intended to operate. And if you don't, you can play life, you can do life, but life won't go as it was designed to go. And so it's important that we understand that, that having the, these six attitudes are very important to, to the lives that God has called us to live in the righteousness that he's described that's available to those who are his disciples. And so we're going to go to the text today. We're going to talk about heartstrings, fine-tuning the attitudes of the heart. And Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount is going to give us six attitudes. Today, we're going to deal with one. And the one attitude that we're going to deal with today is the attitude called anger. Anger. I wanted to name this, this study anger management. And, and the reason why I think is because when we hear the subject anger, most of us are thinking about somebody who should be here or maybe somebody who's in here who needs a message on anger. I'm not going to ask for a testimony. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. If you know somebody that needs this, think of their name right now. That's usually what we do when we hear a sermon about anger. Or the second response is, I should have skipped today because this is a subject that I don't want to hear about and later be held accountable for. The reality is that all of us deal with anger. Now, the reason why I love this poem, and I shared it several years ago, some of you were not here, and some of you were, but you've slept since then, one of my favorite poems is entitled The Lady. And the reason why I like it is because there are times, I think, where most of us think that, that anger is mostly a male problem. Right, ladies? Right, guys? Oh, y'all are being really cautious today. 
And uh, we also think that maybe moms don't have a problem with anger. I saw a mom this week on Facebook. She put on there, finally, I got my freedom because her kids are in school. And I wondered about the long summer of angry emotions that she had to deal with for having lost her summer because her kids are not in school. Uh, That's why they have summer school, I guess. But anyway, here's what the poem by Jay West, this is what he says. My mother was a lady. She went to the finest school. She would never swear or cuss or ever act like a fool. She always wore a pretty dress with gloves and matching hat. My mother was a lady until I came to bat. Are you ready? Now, something about baseball must have drove mom insane, for when the ump called strike one, she called him a dirty name. You're a stupid so-and-so and blind as a bat. I bet you don't even know where the strike zone is at. Strike two called the empire. I heard a roar from the stands. Kill the ump, my mother yelled, like a general in command. When the ump called strike three, I thought that he'd drop dead. My mother threw a pop bottle and hit him on the head. The crowd came out of the stands. That started a great big fight. My mom was right in the middle. She was a pretty sight. I don't think she even realized the umpire was my dad. (laughs) Every dad had to take a turn to umpire at least one game. My dad recovered very nicely, but I won't ever be the same. (laughs) One thing we never talk about is the time mother spent in jail or why it took my father so long to post the bail. I bet I, if you were, their pastor saw them in the office right after that. Anyway, my mother is a lady, and that she will always remain as long as we don't take her to another baseball game. We all have a problem with anger. If you have a computer, you've been angry at a computer. And sometimes the best way to fix it is nothing like a good hammer. If you're married, you've had a problem with anger. If you're connected to a family, a biological family, there are times in that family where you will experience anger. If you're a part of a faith community like a church, the people you're closely connected to, even spiritually, who have good intentions sometimes will act inappropriately and in ways that will hurt you, and as a result of that, you will have and experience anger. Chances are where you work, there are times when you've been angry at someone. And the reality is that all of us have a problem with anger. The problem is when we deny the reality of our emotion called anger and we, 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 we sweep it under the rug, we deny its existence, we, we let it fester, and the end result is catastrophic to even the strongest of marriages, the best of families, and the finest workplaces, and even the most loving churches. For anger has been at the root of killing many and most relationships that many people hold dear in their lives. And if we are not careful as human beings, we will allow the emotion of anger to to carry us down the course or the path to the place in which it will be so destructive that it will even kill the people that we love. I'm thinking about Missouri right now and the anger that's in the streets. 
I'm thinking about the anger of ISIS and the anger they have towards us as Christians. And I'm convinced that the, the, the wars that we experience are, as res, are a result, most of them, because of anger in man's heart toward another man. And Jesus is about to help us understand that at the root of murder is anger. For he's talking to some people who have misunderstood the law or the commandment of God. He's going to now give us six illustrations, and this is one of six, in which he's going to help us and them understand that righteousness comes from the heart. And most of the people that he's addressing, especially the scribes and the Pharisees, did not believe that they had a problem called murder because they had not physically murdered someone. And Jesus is about to give them what God intended in the spirit of the law, that you may not physically murder someone with your hands, but you certainly can murder them in your heart. For it is in the heart that sin resides, and it is with the heart where sin then is exhibited by our hands and by our actions. And he's about to bring now to the reality of their sinful condition in this whole concept called murder. But before we do, I want us to look at Unger's definition of what anger is in the definition of what we're talking about. Look at the text up here on the screen. It says, the new Unger's Bible dictionary states that anger is sinful when it rises too soon. Without reflection, when the injury that awakens it is only apparent, when it is disproportionate to the offense, when it is transferred from the guilty to the innocent, when it is too long protracted and becomes vengeful. There is a thing called righteous indignation, which is anger, and the Bible talks about God getting angry. But God, even though in his anger, never sins. And God is saying that we should, we should understand that there's a righteous indignation, which is anger. But if we are not careful, anger can be, even though it's righteous, can be acted in a wrong way and overreacted and become sin. And there is also a thing called anger that is a sinful anger that must be avoided. So there are two types of anger, a righteous indignation, which is the right kind of anger, which God has, which we should have from time to time, when injustice is being committed against someone else. But there is a wrong kind of anger that we must completely avoid because of the circumstances that anger brings, not only in our personal lives and in the lives of the relationships of the people that we care most about. What people don't realize is anger is more destructive to the person that is angry than to the people that they're angry toward. But somehow we miss that because we revel in our emotion called anger. Well, what, is, what does the Bible say? A couple of verses in Proverbs chapter 29, verse 22. The Bible said, a man of wrath stirs up strife, and one given to anger causes much transgression. Interesting passage, isn't it? Here it talks a man that is giving to much anger. He's quick to become angry. His emotional state is quickly lit up. And as a result of that, notice he, this anger then lodges in his heart. The consequence is that he then acts like a fool. In Ephesians 4, 26, 27, it says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sin go down, sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity for the devil. He says here that we are to be what? Quick do not be quick in your spirit to become angry. You know, sometimes uh, we're around people and we know people, and sometimes we're like this, that we are so emotionally drawn that in just the drop of a hat, all of a sudden, rah! 
And the people around us are just completely living and walking in fear. If you had a dysfunctional family member or a dysfunctional family uh, or, or maybe a dysfunctional parent, you learned their body language, and by their very body language, you knew to avoid them, or you knew when you could not get away with certain things, and you would probably more than likely hide from them because you know at just the drop of a hat, rah, it would come out. Notice in Ephesians 4.26, it be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity for the devil. The angry in the early part is an angry that is righteous indignation. It says that there is a righteous anger. There is a right kind of anger. But it says we need to be careful because even though we possess the right kind of anger, we can react wrongly to the feeling and the emotion of anger in a sinful way. So guard that. And the second part of that verse says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. That's irritation, anger. Because someone has said something or done something or failed to do something, you were agitated, you were irritated, you were exasperated with them. And because of that, now this emotion of anger is there. And it says, when that anger rises up within you in that relationship that you care very much about, or even that acquaintance at work or wherever they are, that we are to make sure that we don't let the sun go down on that anger. Why? Because we'll give opportunity for the devil. You know, the devil loves to divide and conquer. And I'm convinced that the root of most divorces and marriages today, there's a root of anger. Because there's exasperation and irritation and disappointment and hurt and pain because they either did something or failed to do something. And many times that partner doesn't even know that they've done it. And bitterness begins to swell up and it destroys the relationship. And Satan wedges into that relationship and begins to pull apart that relationship and we see the dissolve of the family and that loving relationship. James 1, 19, 20 says, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of a man does not produce the righteousness of God. This is good advice and we could just stop there today and go home and practice this, couldn't we? He says here in the text, be quick to hear. That's hard, isn't it? Be slow to speak. That's even harder, especially when the emotion of anger is coming up because the first thing that we, that we see that, that is engaged is not only the heart, but it's the mouth, isn't it? And be slow to become angry. Why? To avoid allowing anger to not only be sin in our heart, but to reflect that sinful heart and create actions of sin and damage and hurt the relationship, not only with that individual, but with God. Because when we're angry with each other, we cannot enjoy a loving, intimate relationship with God. Because we are created in the image of, of Christ, in the image of God. And in the image of God, when we're angry at our brothers and sisters, we're, we're also at enmity with God. And so we can't have the right relationship with God if we're not right with each other. It's, it's impossible. And we're going to see that in this text as Jesus addresses that. So what does Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount with this first attitude called anger? What does he say about anger? Let's take a look at it. He compares it to murder. Now, look at the text, and let's look at verse 21. There is a principle, first of all, that we need to rebuild. Jesus is about to rebuild a principle. There is a, a tradition of man that is being propagated, that is being preached, that is being 
proclaimed, that is being uh, claimed by the self-righteous. And so in this text, Jesus sort of gathers them in like a, a mother hen into the, 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 her, her, her web, sort of her, her wing, sort of bring them along because he knows that if he can bring them along, he'll sort of hook them, so to speak, he can then nail them. <laughs> and I think that's what he's doing here. And so he talks about the act of murder. Notice the act within itself. You have heard that it was said to those of old. You have heard, again, we talked about that last week. The scribes and the Pharisees, they were proclaiming and preaching the traditions of man rather than the scriptures of God. And so they had heard from of old. It's been a long time. They have heard these old sayings. You shall not murder. What commandment is that? Anybody know? The sixth commandment. Go look it up if you don't know what it is. The sixth commandment. Not to kill. He said, thou shalt not murder. The word murder here is a murder. It is a taking of a life for personal gain. It's not talking about war. It's not talking about someone invading your home and you're protecting your life and the life of your family and your children. It's talking about killing someone for personal gain. The taking of a life out of anger and personal gain. So he says, thou shalt not murder, and whoever murders, kills for personal gain, will be liable for judgment. And they're going, that's right. Amen. And they mend it because, you see, they were looking in a, in a mirror in regard to a reflection and interpretation of this law, and they believed themselves to be living out this law. We are not guilty of murder. Our hands have never taken the life of another person for personal gain. Look at my self-righteousness. I've lived up to this law. You set them up. Now he's about to take them down. Verse 22. But I say to you, I, Jesus, equal with God, preexistent before time with God in heaven, who now became word in the flesh, dwelling among men, according to John 1. I, the author, the almighty, the authoritative one, equal to God. But I tell you what me and my father have to say about that. But I say to you, who are here, that everyone, that is, that is, he qualifies everyone. There's, there's no distinction here. There's no favoritism. There's no leaving somebody out because of their position or because of any self-righteous claim that, I, that they have. But I say that everyone, everyone, scribe and Pharisee alike, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. And it blew their minds. Jesus is putting anger and murder on the same playing field, equally level. You may not have murdered someone with your hands, but you have murdered someone in your heart. And that is the same thing as taking an instrument or a weapon and killing them physically. What do you, how do you think they react about, about that? Uh, unfavorably, obviously. And Jesus is sort of now adjusting then this whole commandment, giving them then the intention of the spirit of the law rather than the legalistic approach to the law, which was the whole intent that God gave when he gave them the commandment. 
There's the legal ramification of the law, but there's the spirit of the law. You may not have taken a weapon in your hand and killed somebody physically, but you have murdered someone in your heart. And you have murdered them in your heart through anger. What kind of anger? He talks about, I call it stubborn anger. This is a, an anger where an anger with his brother will be liable to judgment. That word brother not only means brother who is a fellow Hebrew or Jew, but it means anyone. It means anyone, even an infidel, even an unbeliever. In other words, this is a qualification that has no limitations to it. Any person that crosses your path in your life, whether they're a believer or not, a Hebrew or a Gentile, whoever they are, let me tell you something. If you are angry with your brother, you will be liable to judgment. This anger that is described here is an anger that is a a grudging, it is a, a smoldering anger that refuses to forgive. It is holding on to the hurt, to the infraction, to, to, the, to the harm that they somehow have justified that they have, and they're holding on to this, and they're not letting it go. They have no desire for reconciliation. All they want to do is fester and feed this anger that is there, and it just... It just smolders there in their heart, and it just lives there, and it's never going to be left at the altar. There's no, no intention of reconciliation. They just, they just love it because it gives them justification for the hurt and the harm that they believe that they're justified in having. Well, if, 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 if you only knew what they did to me. You know, chances are the person doesn't even know what they've done. Ladies, 90% of the time, we guys have no clue. We're like bulls in a china closet when it comes to, the, to, to living with, with the opposite sex. We just are. That's what attracts you to us, but that's also what offends you about us, right? Unless you have to, you know, have the pleasure of marrying one of these sensitive guys, you know, which most of us are not. I call them mama's boys. You know, I digress. Yeah. I don't know how I got into that, dit, that pit, but I'm going to get out real quick. Stubborn anger. Secondly, there is a slanderous anger. You see, I'm festering and I'm holding on and I'm feeding this anger. I'm justified to this feeling that I have. They've hurt me. They've harmed me in some kind of way. And now my anger then begins to escalate. I begin to slander them. I, I'm filled with scorn and disdain. Dis, disdain. There's, this, there's this hatred toward them. Every time in the room, I, I just... I just and now I begin to slander them. There's an outward byproduct of this anger. This anger now is not only visible by, by my actions or my, 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 the look on my face. And some of you ladies know what I'm talking about. He doesn't have a clue. I've been trying to give him signals that he's made me upset, and, and he just, he's just not paying attention. And, and your husband says, well, I didn't know you were angry. I've been giving you signals for three days. But, but we, you know, we're just like this, ladies. I'm sorry. It's just hard for us to. Now, there are looks, guys, that we know that when we get them, we should not ignore them. You know what I'm talking about, guys? Can I get an amen to that? Amen. Got one brother over here who's going to be having lunch by himself. I'm not sure who that is. But this person has malicious intent, and they begin, their, their, their anger is so festered that the first thing now that begins to work is not only the expression of their face, but their mouth starts to move. 
and they get on the text or they get on emails or they get on Facebook. Sometimes they get on blogs. And anything you write in print that's on the internet stays there forever. So be careful what you put in print. And they began then to degrade, to ridicule, to belittle, to attack verbally with anyone that will listen. And they will destroy a person's character and their credibility with as many people as will listen. That's anger. And then the last part of the anger is what I call spirited anger. This is, this is the high-tempered anger. This is the escalation of anger. And he says, whoever says, you fool, would be liable of hell of fire. There was a place in Jerusalem where there was a, a city dump. And they took all the, the refuge there. And when a criminal died, they would take that criminal, uh, his body there. They would not give him proper burial rites. And they would throw his body into the dump. And the, the dump was then lit on fire. And the bodies were burned. They were cremated. And Hebrew Jewish people did not approve of cremation. And that was the ultimate insult in your death. And when they heard that this person who allows the anger to so escalate that they became physically, verbally, emotionally, mentally, spiritually abusive, it is out of control, passions are high, tensions are deep, and all of these things are going on, you are guilty to that kind of judgment. It went from the council first to the Supreme Court. Now they're going to take your body and they're going to burn it in the dump. And so the Jewish people were shocked. How could that be? How could anger get to that escalation? Is it possible for that to happen and you still be righteous in your actions? Jesus was. Take your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 26. I want to look at this very, very quickly. Matthew 26. When Jesus had finished, verse 1, all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the place of the high priest whose name was Caiaphas and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and to kill him. Why do they want to kill him? They were angry. They were angry. If you are not careful, you can become so angry that you will take the life of someone else by your own hands. And we all would say that's wrong. But Jesus is saying for his disciples, I'm going to bring it to another level. You can murder someone not with your hands and claim I've never murdered someone, but if you have committed murder in your heart, that's the same thing. If you have gotten so angry with someone that you have done these things, you are guilty of this commandment. We see then not only the rebuilding of the principle, but then we see also in the text the reconciliation of a posture. There's a posture to reconcile. Notice in the text, verse 23, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. This guy is bringing an offering. Now, 
don't miss the kind of offering that it is. It's a sin offering. He's committed a sin. It's possibly the day of atonement in which he's bringing a, 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 an offering. It could be a, a dove. It could have been a, a lamb. It could have been a, a goat. It could have been a bull. But he's bringing an offering to the altar, and he is laying his hand on it, and it is to be slit. It's to spill his blood on the altar for the remission or the atonement or the forgiveness of his sin. He recognizes his sin before a holy and righteous God, and he's bringing his offering before God. And while he's bringing this offering to God, notice he remembers an offense. What's the offense? We don't know. We don't even know how he remembered it. But he's offering his offering before this sacrifice offering, hoping to, to have atonement or forgiveness of his own sin. And then he realizes, I've got someone over here that I have sinned against. I have sinned against them. We're not sure how he knows that, but he knows that. And we see in that offense, as he remembers that, he then has then an opportunity, an opportunity either to make it right or to ignore it. In here, he doesn't ignore it. He is told to leave his offering at the altar, leave it there, go and reconcile with your brother, and then come back. That's the opportunity. The opportunity is when you remember that you have sinned against someone, you need to go to them and reconcile with them. At that moment, that is the opportunity. Don't put it off till tomorrow or next week or next month. Why is that? Because weeks become months and months become years. And before you know it, reconciliation never takes place. And the division continues to grow. And your relationship with God is continuing to be hindered by that if we're harboring unforgiveness and resentment towards someone who has sinned against us and notice the order that he gives here he says first be reconciled to your brother and then come and then present your gift to me I don't know about you, but that kind of struck a chord with me in Genesis chapter 4 take your Bible there, I want us to look at Genesis 4 there were two brothers Adam and Eve uh, they were in the garden having a wonderful time. And they had two sons. Right? Verse 3 says in chapter 4, And the course of time came, brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord regarded, had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. Did he have a reason to be, a right to be angry? Did he? What's the answer to that? No. He brought the wrong offering. His brother brought the right offering. And yet he felt slighted somehow. And anger rose up in his heart because my brother's offering was accepted and mine was not. Notice verse 6. Don't, don't pass this up, but notice verse 6. The Lord then came to Cain and said, Why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, you will, <laughs> will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Why is sin crouching at the door? He's angry. If you let this anger fester against your brother, sin's crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. You got you to get it under control. What does he do instead? Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Out of anger, 
And if we're not careful, that's the direction, the course that anger always takes. We have two brothers offering an offering at the same altar to God. He accepts one and rejects the other because it is done with the wrong attitudes of the heart. And instead of reconciling with God, he gets mad at his brother. And as a result of that anger, it festers to the point after having given a warning by God to, to, to control it, to manage it, he then allows it to escalate to the point where he takes his brother's own life. Here we have two worshipers in a worship service, one getting angry at the other. And we wonder why anger sometimes wells up in churches today. And if we're not careful as a church, in our clumsiness, in our depravity, in our sinfulness, in our weaknesses, in our carelessness, we can accidentally do something that can offend a brother or sister. We might not even know it, and they have become angry with us And the end result is they then begin to plot your demise. Let's take a look then at the practice that needs to be reconsidered. There's a practice in this text, and it's described in verse 25. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. Lease your accuser, hand you over to the judge, and the judge to be the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. There's a command here in this text. He says, come to terms quickly with your accuser. The word accuser is an interesting word. It means adversary. It means enemy. But it also means someone that believes that you're liable for a debt. A debt has been incurred. There's some sort of disagreement or some sort of offense, some sort of sin, some sort of hurt. And so now he is your accuser. So there's a command, come to terms quickly. There again, we see, seize the opportunity, seize the moment. Don't delay. If someone has sinned against you, do not delay and go to them. If you are aware of sinning against someone, you must go to them. Now, make sure that it's sin because somebody may be angry at you and it's not because of sin. It may be because of righteousness. But if there is a sin that you have committed or your brother has committed a sin against you, you must quickly then come to terms quickly with that which you are liable to. The charge is he or she has a legitimate charge. Your wife may have a legitimate charge, husbands. Your children may have a legitimate case, parents. Children, your parents may have a legitimate charge against your sin. And he says, come to terms quickly with that. While you are going with him to court, before you get there. Why? There are consequences there. Notice the consequences. They'll put you in prison. Now... If someone sins against us, it may not be the kind of sin that you could take to court and actually, you know, take a lawyer with you and and take them to court and prove the fact that they've sinned against you. But there is a prison of a different kind. It's the prison of an unforgiving heart. And if you're not careful, anger will become bitterness. And there's nothing worse than a bitter person. Because bitterness will eat at your soul. And it will destroy your heart for God. You can bury it. You can deny it. You can ignore it. You can suppress it. You can 
excuse it, but until you deal with it, bitterness is a prison that will hold you captive until you deal with the root of bitterness, which is your anger, and that anger comes from an offense where they have sinned against you. You have a grievance, and you are justified in that grievance. And there are many believers today in many marriages, in many families, and in many churches that are enslaved with a bitter spirit. And no one likes to be around that person. Nobody. It's a prison. And until the price has been reconciled and restitution has been made and reconciliation becomes a reality in that the price has been paid to the last penny, there is a consequence that cannot be denied. Turn to Jonah chapter 4. Now, I'm going to take a, a side trip here because I think it's, it's important to note. Because I think as I dwelt on this subject, it, it's okay for us to be angry and to admit it and to deal with it with people. But I have this speculation that I think sometimes there are people that are angry with God. Angry with God. And they're angry with God because, you see, uh, I can acknowledge that I'm angry with my spouse or, or my children or my parents or with my brother or sister in Christ or a co-worker. And, and okay, we, we've talked about dealing with that. So I want to move to another dimension now for just a moment before we close. I want to know, are you angry at God? Because I've met people in ministry who are embittered at God because God's not fair. How dare he? I deserve better than this. We have a guy named Jonah. You know Jonah? Jonah was asked by God to go to Nineveh to take the gospel of repentance there, and he said no. He bought a, a ticket to Tarshish, and he got on a boat, and while he was on the boat, there was a, a, a storm. He finally confessed, it's me, and I'm the reason for this. They threw him overboard. A large fish swallowed him up. After three days, he repented in the belly of the large fish. They threw him it threw him out on the, on the shore. He took a quick bath, went to Nineveh, preached the gospel, and they repented. You, should, you would have thought he, he was happy about that. But he wasn't. Notice Jonah 4.1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. They don't deserve grace. Whack them. Kill them. Wipe them off the planet. I hear that about ISIS right now. Let's destroy them. What if they were to repent? Would be okay with that? And he got angry because God didn't destroy them. And he prayed to the Lord and he said, Oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and a merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. He knew what kind of God he was. Therefore now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. He was so angry he wanted to die. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Do you do well to be angry? And Jonah went out 
of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. And he sat under in that shade till he could see what could be done of the city. He was just kind of waiting, hoping that maybe after they repented, it was still going to get wiped off the planet, I think. And now the Lord God appointed a plan and he made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because he had a plan and he had some shade, man. It was hot like yesterday and, you know, and he had some shade. There's a little bit of breeze because there's always a little bit of breeze, you know, around Nineveh. Like there's Wichita and he's feeling kind of cool and kind of good. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm and attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose that day, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on his head, the head of Jonah, so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it's better for me to die than to live. Notice verse 9, but God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there is more than 120,000 persons who do not throw, who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. Here's what I want to say about that. I think what God was having a discussion with Jonah that he sometimes need to have with us is that what right do you have to be angry with me, God asks. Well, I've gotten the short end of the stick. It's not fair. What's not fair? These, these Ninevites repented, and you didn't destroy them. I knew you were a gracious, forgiving, loving God for those who would repent and turn to you, and you, you forgave them, and dead gumming, I'm mad, I'm angry at you, God. And, and, he, and he goes up on top of this hill, and he sits down, and there's this tree there, and God grows up this plant, and there's this great shade, and he's, he's, he's having this you know, wonderful time, and then God sends a worm to kill the plant, and now the scorching sun is beating down on him, and he gets mad, and God says, why are you mad? What do you mean why I'm mad? I, I was enjoying this life, and then you took it away from me. I had this shade, it was gone. And he says, was not the tree mine? Well, yeah. Did I not send the worm? Well, yeah. And if, and if I want to take away the shade that I provided, don't I have the right? Uh, I guess. Are you not mine? Are you not my prophet? Can I not do with you what I want? What about what I want? What about what I think is fair? I've known a lot of people in 30 plus years of ministry who are angry at God. Because their life didn't turn out like they wanted it to turn out. They had to imagine this life. They had figured it all out. And now this circumstance or this situation or their tree withered or a worm came into their life, uh, you know, I, I, I want to I I write a book someday about the, the, the whales and the worms of life. Don't steal that title, okay? Because sometimes God brings whales into our lives and worms into our lives to take away the very things that we treasure the most to remind us that if we are God's, 
completely and totally his. He has the right to do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, at his pleasure, and we should say nothing about it. Just go with him. I know pastors that are bitter at God. I know ministers that are bitter at God. I know people who are bitter at God. They're angry at him because of certain circumstances. I'm not at this level, and they are. I haven't gotten this, and they do. You've done this to me and not to them, and I'm just angry. And if we're not careful, I'm convinced that it's the most destructive anger we can have in our relationship with God and with each other. Because when I'm angry with God, I'm going to be angry with my brothers and sisters. And if I'm angry with my brothers and sisters, I'm not going to have a great relationship with God. So what about this thing called anger? Have you been guilty of murder in the heart? Well, I've never actually committed the act of murder How about the attitude of murder? Because you see, he's more interested in your heart. Because when your heart is right, your actions are right. And the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees were getting the cart before the horse. They were thinking, it's all about my actions. Yes, the practice of righteousness is there. But personal righteousness comes from the heart first that manifests itself in the practice of righteousness as an overflow of what's already transpired in the heart, a heart change. And when we become righteous in our hearts, our actions will reflect that righteousness. So the trouble you're having today in your actions is not your actions. It's not your actions, it's your heart. And what we all need today, we all need today, because every one of us here would have to honestly admit, I am sometimes self-righteous. And if we're honest and totally humble, we have to come to terms with that, that heart condition that needs to be changed. And it can only be changed by the power of God's Spirit. Let's pray. 